Did we get to see the eclipse, anybody? I know a couple talked about it. A few of you couple did? It's a nice, nice little view. Got to see it as the, as the moon was setting here. I was watching it out over the bookstore so you could actually watch it go down and it was in totality as it disappeared behind the bookstore. It was very, very faint. Didn't look like the nice blood red that they talk about because it was so low in the sky that it was much, much fainter than it otherwise would be. But it was still a nice sight. We do have a solar eclipse coming up in a couple weeks, but you really have to be able to see the western horizon to be able to see it. So unless you have something where you can see the western horizon literally down to the ground without trees or anything else. So those who are up on the mountains might have a chance, but most of us are not going to see it. And it'll just be a little bite taken out of the sun the last half hour as just before it sets. So I'll remind you about it just in case. but. Um, otherwise, we do have, uh, we did have an exam that was apparently a tough exam. Um, the average, I posted the average on there, it was like a little under 60%, which wasn't, wasn't good. Uh, there wasn't something in the 90s, something in the 80s, a few in the 70s, and most of them were a lot lower. So I'm going to look at those. You'll have those back probably the end of the week. If you want to see scores, they're up there. If you don't want to see scores, just ignore looking at scores on D2L and you won't see them yet. Um, I will be updating those and trying to get everything else caught up by the end of the week so I can submit your midterm grades and they will be up on there. But I'm going to look. I do have a couple extra credit assignments I give, so there will be a couple things that I'll be giving later on that will, that will help pull up a, a lower exam grade like that. So th that will be coming. I'll get you that information coming up probably in another couple in the week or two. Otherwise, we do have due next week. We have an iTunes quiz. I pushed that off. I had it due Monday, which is the holiday, Columbus Day holiday, so we won't be here. Technically, I could leave it due since it's online, but since I like to give you that last reminder, I pushed it off till Wednesday. So it's not due till a week from today. I will give you a last reminder on Wednesday so you can have a chance to finish that, finish that up. Of course, if you do it in the meantime and are done with it, you don't have to worry about it and you're all set. Homework 4 will be due the 15th as well. And then quiz four will be in class. So that one will actually do in, do in class. It's scheduled for the 17th. It could be a day earlier. It could be, a, hopefully not any later than that. It could be a day earlier. I'll let you know just depending on how far we get through uh, chapter 10 and then one other section of chapter 10 I want to uh, talk about again. I'm going to go through the chapter kind of twice. Uh, I'm going to do one section of it twice. And then the quiz will be right after we get through all that. So hopefully that way the material will all be fresh in your mind. Uh, it's a little bit different. This one is not a multiple choice quiz. It's one of the reasons I do this one in class instead of on, online. <coughs> and then the second article review coming up I have scheduled for due the 20th of October. So that's still a couple weeks away. If you have a little bit of time here you can start looking at, you know, looking at articles. I do have that list of articles up on D2L. You're welcome to select a second one from that list. You know, as long as you're selecting a different article you're welcome to do another one from that list if you like. So, any questions on anything there? Nope, nope, nope. Alrighty, well, picture of the day for today. Um, this is a cloud sculpting star cluster. So, what we have has happened here is a cluster of stars has formed. At one point, if we could have gone back a million years, this would have been a very dark cloud, a very hard area to see. But since that time, areas have collapsed and have formed a lot of bright new hot stars, hot blue stars there. And what those stars do, they're very energetic. They put out a lot of energy. We mentioned the solar wind. My solar wind came out from the sun. It was generally relatively calm. These winds are much more intense. 
So much higher energy. There's a lot more material streaming out from them. And it actually can sculpt away at the dust and gas that is left behind. And you can almost get that impression looking here. As you see, some of these remnants that are left, if you imagine you know, water washing over the beach, right? when there's a rock, when there's denser material there, it doesn't get it still stays there, so all this dust remains here, shielded by denser material, probably where another star is forming. Same thing here, same thing here, here. Those are the denser areas. All the less dense material is just completely swept away by the intensity of the winds of these, of these stars. Um, when, I say, so when I say wind, wind is not like wind we're thinking of here. Wind in terms of these is just really a, a flow of particles. So it's not a wind as in we think of the nice gentle breezes blowing here back and forth. This is actually just an intense stream of particles constantly eating away and continuing. It will continue to eat away at these over time. So if we could come back in 10,000 years, we'd see that this, this state had changed. We'd eaten away at more of this, more of this gas and dust will be eliminated from around these stars. They'll just have the cluster of stars now sitting there and a lot of this gas and dust that's here now will be gone. You'll probably see a few new stars form here where these areas are really, really dense, where there's lots of material here. Another 100,000 years or so, a couple hundred thousand years, we'll actually see new stars forming there as well as these go through their lives. So, but the shapes that we're seeing here, all these shapes, all this design is really dependent on the energy of the stars that formed. So in a way, the stars form from the gas and dust and then they eat away at the gas and dust afterwards and clear it out, af clear it out after their, as they have formed. Eventually some of these stars will probably explode as supernovae and even change the landscape significantly more over time. So get some pretty little, pretty nice, pretty pictures with the uh, nebulae here. And star formation as we see here we'll be talking about uh, coming up, once we get through stars themselves, the next, our next unit is really talking about the interstellar medium, talking about gas and dust out in space and how stars form. So that'll be our next, our next section after we get through stars. Basics about stars and their properties here first. Questions? Otherwise, we'll head back to, head back to stars then. Let's see, we were looking right here last time. So we were looking at the temperature, the, determining the temperatures. Overall, we were looking at determining different properties. We talked about the brightnesses in terms of magnitudes, how bright a star is. And now we're looking at temperatures and how we determine the temperatures of a star. And if we look at something like Orion, uh, Betelgeuse should have a little bit of a redder tinge to it. Rigel should look a little bit bluer. You're going to see a slight difference in the temp in the coloring of the stars. Now really to see, you do need a good dark sight to really be able to see it distinctly, but you'll probably be able to see that there's definitely a difference in colorations. Astronomers can measure that more exactly. So there are techniques that astronomers use to actually make a measurement of the stars and determine which ones are hotter and which ones are cooler. And not only that, but actually to get a temperature. I can tell you that Betelgeuse is you know, about half the temperature of the sun, but a star that's about 3,000 degrees will be red, so will a star that's 2,500, so will a star that's 3,500 or 4,000. They'll all look reddish orange to us. So we need a way to really be able to measure the temperatures more accurately, to get an accurate measurement of the temperatures. And there is a way that we can do that. And that is using the black body curves of the stars. 
So we talked about these uh, back a couple chapters ago here. Uh, the black body curve was just the range that the star, range of spectra that the star, range of frequencies here that the star, how bright the star was at each one. So if we look here out in the x-rays and gamma rays way off to the right here, this star does not emit a whole lot of x-rays or gamma rays, neither do either of these two stars. Stars tend not to emit a lot of x-rays or gamma rays. But this star actually gives a lot of light in the ultraviolet. And blue, yellow, red, there's the visible spectrum there. It gives off the whole range here. This star, again, lower than this star at all regions. This is a much cooler star. A little bit different here. Finally, a much very cool star. What we're looking at here is that the way the black body curve, it's always the same shape. Just depends on the temperature, how it's shifted, right? Very cool stars are shifted off. The peak is off in the red or the infrared in this case. Very hot stars, the peak is off in the ultraviolet. But because it has this uh, asymmetrical shape, it's not symmetrical, you can very easily make two measurements to determine a star's temperature. And that's what astronomers do. You see these blue and yellow wavelength bands are highlighted and that is, those are two regions of the spectrum that astronomers will make measurements in. They'll take a filter that just lets through the blue light, they'll fil take a filter that just lets through the yellow light, and they'll measure the brightness of the star in each of them. If you have a very hot star like this one at 30,000 degrees, you're going to measure a lot more blue light than you do yellow light. Measuring a lot more blue, that's the star that's going to look a little blue in the sky. And that is a star like uh, some of the stars here in Orion, Rigel is 20,000, Mintaka is about 30,000, extremely hot stars. If we look at a slightly cooler star, something like Sirius, another star in that same vicinity with Orion, if you see Orion there off to the lower left is the dog star, Sirius. If you look at that and you make the same measurement, you measure it through this blue filter, detect how much light you get over a certain period of time, measure it through the yellow filter, detect how much light, you get almost exactly the same. You're right about at the peak of this curve. So you're going to get almost the same amount in the blue as in the visual or the yellow and that'll tell you something about the temperature. The difference between those two actually can tell you the temperature. So you can get all sorts of variations in between. The more blue you're getting relative to yellow, the hotter the star is. And you can quantify, figure out exactly what the temperature is by making that measurement. You can say that you get so much more blue light than yellow, that means it's 30,000 degrees. You get a different amount, maybe it's 25,000. As they get a little bit closer and it gets close, you get down to 20, they're getting closer together. 15,000, at 10,000 they match. You get about the same amount of light in each. Then as you go the other direction, 8,000, 5,000, now you're going to start getting much more yellow light than you are blue light. So when you get down to this 3,000 degree star, something much like uh, Betelgeuse, down here at about 3,000 degrees, you're getting a lot more light in the yellow part of the spectrum than you are in the blue. Now overall, you're getting less light from a specific star, just depending on the temperature. Notice that everything here, these aren't offset, these are actually how they're supposed to be. That means that a 3,000 degree star does not emit near as much energy as a 30,000 degree star. Each little segment of its surface, each square meter, 
puts out so much energy and a big bright hot star like uh, Rigel is putting out a lot more energy in each square meter. A cool star like Betelgeuse is putting out much less energy in each square meter. So overall if these two stars are exactly the same size, the big hot star is going to be a lot, lot brighter because it has more energy coming out of each section. Some stars like Betelgeuse are so tremendously bright, not because they put a lot of energy out in each square meter, they put a lot less out than the sun does, but they're tremendously big. So they've got billions of more square meters to be putting out energy. So even if you're putting out less, when you have billion times more of those square meters to put out energy, you're going to add up a lot more. And that's why a star like Betelgeuse, which would fill a big chunk of our solar system if we put it here. If we put Betelgeuse where the sun is, it would fill, uh, what, out through towards Jupiter area? Maybe not quite there, but I mean it would fill a big chunk of our solar system. We'd be inside the star. That's how large those are. So you think of how many square meters that has on its surface, how many square meters the sun has on its surface, you know, way down there at the center of our solar system. A big, big difference. But this gives us, gives astronomers a way to measure temperatures. And I'll come back next week and I'll show you a little bit more of this. I'll go a little bit more detail as to how we make the, actually make those measurements. But black body curves can only tell us so much. They're nice. They can tell us the temperature. We can get some ideas of the brightnesses. We've talked about magnitudes already. But really the spectra tell us a lot more. Spectra means we not only do that, we split it up and look at all the different wavelengths and look at the black body curves, but we also look at the detailed spectra. We look at the emission, the absorption lines that appear in the spectrum. When we do that we find that there are patterns that occur and we can then classify stars. They're classified according to their temperature and there's seven different categories that are used. That are used. And astronomers have called them or labeled them by capital letters. O are the hottest stars. And M are the coolest stars. So why did they choose to do it this way? Why did they do O, then B, then A, then M? Well, you know, where's C? Where's D? Why is O first and not after M? Not the way we'd probably do it, right, if we were going to just do these. They're not named after anything. What actually happened is when astronomers first started doing this, a little over, over, over 100 years ago now, they started classifying the stars. They looked at the spectra and they looked for patterns. And the very cleanest spectra that had the fewest spectral lines were called type A. As more and more lines began to occur, we had type B, C, D, all the way down through the end of the alphabet as low, far down as we could go, as more and more spectral lines occurred. So originally it was A, B, C, D, and so on. But as we began to get a physical understanding as to what happened, at that time they didn't know it had anything to do with temperatures. They didn't know that these stars were hotter and these stars were cooler. We didn't have that physical knowledge yet. We had not yet learned that. So they were just classified by how they looked. So these, these spectra all look the same. They had very few spectral lines in them. Those are class A. These ones have a ton of spectral lines and all sorts of stuff in them. They're class M. And then various uh, degrees in between. So when we look at those, now we know that their temperature, when we actually got a physical understanding, we then reordered these. 
We condensed some of them. Some of them kind of merged in together. They ended up being same. So C's and D's disappeared and merged into the B's and the F's. Um, you've got G, F, G, K, M. You know, a few that got merged in together and compacted down. And now we have this set of eight uh, classifications that we use. And right now, now we know, now we know that they depend on temperature. Very, very hot stars are O stars. Those are the very hottest bluish violet stars that we see in the sky. You know, uh, Mintaka we looked at was one of those that would be up there. We just saw in the previous chart that was a 30,000 degree star. M stars are the coolest stars that we see. Betelgeuse would be one of those. So we see a whole range of temperatures. But what did astronomers look at when they were originally classifying these? Was more like this. This is what we saw and we classified them by seven spectral types and they were classified by how the spectra looked and by how strong primarily the hydrogen lines were. So if you can see hydrogen off there and then a couple other bright lines, hydrogen was very strong in the A stars. Most of the other stuff was relatively weak. The O stars, there's not a whole lot there and the hydrogen lines start to get much weaker again. So here's a hydrogen line, gets much stronger. A stars had the very strongest hydrogen lines. And then weaker and weaker and weaker as you get down towards stars like the sun and cooler stars, you don't see the hydrogen lines. So originally they were classified by how the spectra looked. These stars all looked the same. We didn't know why, but we knew that they all looked the same. So they got classified as one type. Stars that had different patterns got classified as a different type. Once we got the physical understanding as to what was going on, then we got more, we had more temperature. We had, we understood that it was really the temperature that is what was causing the difference. So it was the temperature that actually gave it and that's why we have it here. So sort of like magnitudes, it's kind of left over. Left over, we don't change our spectral classifications, we don't reorder it so that these are now A stars and B stars. We leave it as it is, much like the magnitude is left going backwards. Here's just a kind of a, a list as to what we see in each type of classification. Uh, Mintaka, very hot star, is actually an O class star. Rigel, even though it's hot, isn't an O, it's actually a B. B star. You notice that these also have numbers after them. That's because as we make better observations we could actually subdivide these. So you'd have the very hottest B stars, you could put a B0. And then you could have a B1 and so on down to a B9 which would lead you to an A0, A1. So you could actually subdivide them 0 through 9. So you could have a range of them. So a B8 star is on the cooler end of the B stars. An A0 star like Vega is on the hotter end of the A stars. So these, are, these two stars aren't all that far apart going from a B8 to an A0. This is a little bit hotter, but not a whole lot. So that's just a subdivision that we, that we use as well. Our sun is down here as a G2 on the hotter end of the G stars. But this just gives you an idea of temperatures. Again, I've mentioned some of those before, what the spectral classes are. And really, what we see here is what lines do we see? What spectral lines do we see in each of these stars? Well, in stars like O stars that are extremely hot, we don't see hydrogen lines. Hydrogen lines are very weak. If you get down to a cooler star, 
you'll notice that hydrogen lines are faint, moderate, strong, moderate, faint, faint, very faint. So the hydrogen lines start out weak, strengthen up to here, and then get weaker again. And that has to do with the way hydrogen works. Hydrogen has that one single electron. If you get things hot enough, that electron gets ripped off. If you don't have an electron on the hydrogen atom, it can't make any spectral lines. So if you make hydrogen too hot, you've ionized it, you've stripped that electron off, you have a little proton running around all by itself. If it doesn't have an electron attached to it to jump up and down its energy levels, there's no lines. The electron is not attached. You've ripped the hydrogen atom apart. So if you get very, very hot, you're not going to get very strong hydrogen lines. Okay, if you get very cool on the other hand, down here at the M stars like Betelgeuse, you're also not seeing a lot of hydrogen lines. That's because you need enough energy to take that electron and there's your proton and there's one energy level. You need enough energy to get it to start. You need at least this amount of energy. You need a little bit of energy to excite that atom to get it up in a higher energy level. When the stars are very cool, at 3,000 degrees, there's not enough energy. So this just sits down at the bottom level and nothing is excited, so it's not going to give off any lines. So too hot, you rip this electron off and you don't get to see hydrogen lines. Too cool, and you don't have enough energy to excite this to see hydrogen lines. In the middle, at about 10,000 degrees, it's just right. You're, you have enough energy to excite all those hydrogen atoms and cause them to absorb uh, elect photons, but not so much that the electrons are being ripped off constantly from the atoms. So in the middle, you end up just right for hydrogen atoms. The others work similarly. I'm not going to go through all the details there, but you're going to see, you're going to see other elements. They all tell you the temperatures. Certain things here, I don't think I give any others specifically than helium. Helium lines are, what do we have? Helium is moderate, helium is very faint, and then you get to ionized helium all of a sudden. So higher and higher temperatures, you actually get to see helium lines. You can see them in the sun because it's so close and there's a lot of helium there. But the helium lines, by the time you get down to the star like the sun, are really, really weak. So they're not really strong compared to what we've seen, what we've seen in the hotter, hotter stars. We see lots of helium there. Doesn't mean they have any more helium. In fact, all the stars have essentially the same composition. Every star that you go out and look at in the sky is 90% hydrogen. 10% helium and you know splattering of every other element. And that's it. The spectra that we see and the lines that we see really tell us the temperatures. So even though we don't see strong hydrogen lines in these O stars or the M stars, they're still 90% hydrogen. The hydrogen just isn't in the right state for us to see those lines. All right. How about sizes? Measuring the size of a star is quite difficult. Here's Betelgeuse. This is a relatively close star and an extremely large one. We can actually get an image of it and see its size. There's Jupiter's orbit. So I said this would probably this would fill out through Jupiter if we put this at the center of our solar system. We can actually measure contours here. We can actually get some kind of measurements of the star. That's an extremely large star that is rather close to us, so it's very easy to measure. Beyond that, it's really difficult to measure the size of a star directly. 
you can't just take an image. You can take an image with the Hubble Space Telescope of any star, of almost any star you want, and you get a point. It's so far away that everything still looks like a point of light, except in very, very extreme cases. So even Hubble Space Telescope, even those large telescopes, 10, 12 meter telescopes that we're building with all their fancy optics, still can't image a star directly. It's not that they're not gigantic and that many of them do not dwarf the sun in, sky, in the sky. Uh, many of them dwarf Betelgeuse in size. So if you think of a big star there, I'll show you a clip in just a minute of some of the different stars, but uh, they actually are stars that dwarf Betelgeuse. So there are tremendously sized stars out there, but they're so far away that they still all look like a point of light. So we need some other way to really be able to determine distances. So yay, a nice little equation here. Um, we can calculate it. Now we don't have to do the calculations here fortunately, but I want to show you how it would be done. But there's a relationship between the luminosity and the temperature and the radius of the star. And I think I have you look at one of these on the homework. I think I have a homework question on the, where, you do, where you look at one of these as to changing the luminosity and looking at the temperature of the star and trying to find out the size. Again, you won't see that on the exams, so that will not come up again, but I do want you to look at one. But if we know how luminous a star is or compare two stars in their luminosity, if we can compare their temperatures, then we can figure out how big they are. And what we find out is that we classify stars into three different types. There are dwarf stars whose sizes are, well, equal to, even a little bit greater than the sun, you know, twice the size of the sun, three times the size of the sun is still considered a dwarf star. Or anything less than, there's lots of stars that are much smaller, those are classified as dwarf stars. There are giant stars that have sizes between about 10 and 100 times the size of the sun. And then there are supergiant stars which go from 100 times the size of the sun and just keep going, bigger and bigger and bigger. So there are some that are tremendous, 100 times the size of the sun, you know, wouldn't fill out near to the earth. Even 100 suns across would not get that far. Uh, there are stars that are much, much bigger than that. Betelgeuse would be one example that are significantly bigger than that. So if we know that two stars have, you know, the same temperature but different luminosities, so they're exactly the same temperature. That makes it easy. That gets rid of that temperature to the fourth power. Then you can get an idea that their luminosity is different because one star looks brighter, one star looks fainter. If they're the same distance, then we can tell that that must be due to their size. Stars, two stars are the same temperature and same distance away from us. Then their luminosity just depends on their size. A giant star is going to look a lot brighter in the sky than a dwarf star and a supergiant is going to look even brighter than that. It's all just due to their size. Now you can look at differences in temperature as well if you change the temperature of a star. And we'll see that this is going to happen to the sun. The sun is going to become a red giant star in a few billion years. That means it's going to become a red star, which means its temperature is going to decrease. So it's going to go from 6,000 degrees down to about 3,000 degrees. It's going to go down half the temperature. Half the temperature is all of a sudden going to decrease the luminosity by a factor of 16. Okay, it's going to get much, much fainter per each square meter. But it's also going to expand. It's going to get much larger by many times more than that and it'll end up, the sun will end up being much brighter than it is today. So you can change the temperature, you can change the luminosity. The temperature, that, that, that radius can change much more than the temperature can change. Okay, you, can, you can get the temperature down half as much. 
You can double and triple and quadruple it, but you can take sizes going from the size the sun is now to 100 or 1,000 times the size the sun is now. You can't go from the temperature of the sun to 1,000 times the temperature of the sun. That's not going to happen. Or 1 1,000th the temperature of the sun. That's not going to happen. So three different classifications here. We also put those at the end of our classification. So if we want to do the sun, the sun was a G, two star, so it was in the G classification, subdivision two. And then we put a Roman numeral five, where the five means it's a dwarf star. Five is a dwarf, three is a giant, and one is a supergiant. So when we write the classification, the sun is actually a G2 5 star, G2 Roman numeral 5, meaning that it is a G2 star, but it's a dwarf. It's a smaller star. You could also have a star that's a G2 3, meaning it's a giant star. Same temperature as the sun, but much, much larger. Or a G2 1, which is even larger than that. So that last number really tells you something about the size of the star and allows you to compare, to compare some of the stars. So that's just the subdivisions. Yes, there is a 2. Yes, there is a 4. Uh, so it actually does go 1, 2, 3, 4. But these are the three main classifications. There is a subgiant that goes in between there. And there is a, a bigger giant or hyper, I remember, not a hypergiant, something else that goes in between the class 2. You know, a larger giant or a small supergiant that goes in between them. So there are 1, 2, 3, 4. The main, these are the main three that are used, though. Dwarf stars are the vast majority of the stars, and then the rest are giants and supergiants are a very small percentage. All right, did I have one more on sizes? Yeah, I'll give you this one. This is just an example of some of these different stars, just to give you an idea. Ah, there's our poor little sun, our poor little tiny sun, by comparison. Sirius is about twice the size of the sun. That's the dog star, the one off to the left, lower left of Orion. Uh, Spica about seven times the size of the sun. Capella is about 15 times. Aldebaran in Taurus is about 40 times. Antares, the bright star in Scorpius, all of a sudden we're jumping from you know, giant stars up here up to supergiant stars, 500 times the size of the sun. They don't just get bigger, they get smaller too. And here's a lot of littler stars for comparison. Uh, Sirius B, that's, Sirius, that's the main star that we see. It has a little companion that is incredibly tiny. Actually a dead star, the core of a dead star that's left orbiting it. There's Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to us. A little, little less than one-tenth the size of our own sun. So a big range in size. In fact, Proxima Centauri is actually smaller than Jupiter. It's actually a little bit smaller. How can one be a star and one not, right? It's smaller than Jupiter. Smaller in size, not smaller in mass. You keep eating that mass in, it gets compressed down more and more. So the star may be smaller, but the mass is more compacted. It actually has nuclear reactions going on in its core like the sun does, whereas Jupiter, its mass is much more spread out. It doesn't have the intense gravity. For a planet, it does. For a star, it does not. If you could keep putting more mass on Jupiter, it really wouldn't grow in diameter much. It would compact it down more and more to heat up that interior until nuclear reactions occurred. But you need many, many times, many, many Jupiters put together to be able to do that. Now, let me take a skip out of here for one second, because that's then I'm going to do the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. But let me go ahead and do the little video clip you might have seen here at some point. This is doing sizes. 
and does some of the different objects, some of looking at some of the different objects it'll work through from things that are relatively small, our moon. You got to see the eclipse this morning, you saw, you saw our moon there, and there's our moon. And comparing it as we work our way through the solar system, Mercury, bigger, Mars, even bigger than Mercury. There's Venus and Earth, almost exactly the same size, very close. Then a big jump. We go from that to Neptune, there's a tremendous jump, several times larger. Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are about the same size, so we didn't do, didn't do both of them on this. Jupiter, much, much bigger. And jump from Jupiter to a star, wow. Can you see us down there anymore? You know, we're disappeared. Then we jump up to a giant star. There's the sun that was a dwarf star. Now we're up to an orange giant or a red giant star, much, much larger. There's Aldebaran, red giant. We're in giant stars. We haven't hit the super giants yet. You know, we're buried down there someplace. Then we get up to hypergiants and supergiant stars. There's Antares, still not the biggest. Antares was the one I showed you on the last one. There's bigger. And then largest known star, red hypergiant, uh, Vy Canis Majoris. How big is it? This gives you a little bit of an example of how big it is. There's Earth. <laughs> That's about nothing. It's a diameter of 2.8 billion kilometers. Means nothing, right? 2.8 billion kilometers means nothing. So think of a passenger airplane flying just around the surface of the star, you know, magic one that doesn't melt in the heat. It would take 1,100 years to make an orbit around it. No. So getting that airplane, how many generations would it take to actually get around that star? To get around, get around that star one time. That gives you an idea of how big the stars actually, how big the stars actually are. So I like to show that one. I mean, the picture works, by, the picture helps, but I think this shows it a little bit more. And you know, what else is out there? How many larger, are there even larger stars that we have not known about because we're not the, yeah. So. All right, so gives you a little bit of an idea of how big, really how big some of these objects are. And puts us kind of in our place, right? You know, we're kind of, we're a little tiny little speck next to this. All right, so. And we're going to work on the next thing, and I'm going to come back, I'm going to go over this section now. And then once we get through chapter 10, I'm actually going to go back and do the HR diagram again. So we're going to do it twice. Uh, going to do it here, go through it roughly, uh, quickly and then we'll go through it in much more detail probably next Wednesday if things schedule about right. I'll go through it in a little bit more detail. But the HR diagrams developed about a hundred years ago uh, by two astronomers, Hertzsprung and Russell, how it got its name, HR diagram for those two astronomers who first developed it. And what it does is plots two different things. You look at, they were just plotting, look, trying to figure out patterns among the stars and this is the time we're starting to be able to measure temperatures. We're starting to be able to measure the brightnesses of stars. So we'd plot the temperature from very hot stars to very cool stars, right? Backwards from what you'd normally do, right? If you were doing this, you'd do it the other way around, right? Well, astronomers do it the other way. The very hot stars go here and the very cool stars go here. So they, those actually go backwards. Luminosity, very faint stars to very bright stars going this way. Numbers look right going that way, right? Small numbers at the bottom and big numbers at the top. Of course, if you do it with magnitudes and it's backwards again, then you're going to have the very big numbers down here and the very small numbers up there. 
And you find when you start plotting these for some of the stars that we know about, you get nothing much. They're just kind of scattered all over the plot. You get some stars that are very cool and very faint. You get some stars that are cool and bright. There's hot and faint. There's hot and bright. So they're kind of scattered all over the place. Our sun is kind of right in the middle, right in the middle there. But if we look at them, and if we try to look at them a little bit differently, if we look at just certain stars, if we start getting more and more stars plotted, we actually start to see some patterns. This is looking at the stars that are closest to us, the 80 closest stars that are nearby. All of a sudden, our sun went from being in the middle to being really one of the brighter stars there. There's our sun. There's a couple that are brighter, but not a whole lot. The vast majority of the stars near to us are really, really faint stars, really cool stars way out here. There's Proxima Centauri way down here. There's Barnard star we've mentioned before. Those are some of the incredible tiniest stars. So very, very, uh, the sun there is a very, very bright star, but we start to see a pattern. We see lots of stars falling along what we're going to call the main sequence, going from the upper left-hand side and kind of curving down to the lower right. The vast majority of the stars we're going to find are in there. Near us, there's absolutely no stars up in this region. We'll find some later. But there are no stars up in this region where there's very large. These are sizes. So these are stars that are about the size of the sun along this line. Ten times the size of the sun, we don't see any of those among the closest stars. A hundred times, forget it. We don't see anything like those. Those are all much, much further away. Not that they have to be much further away, but that they're rare. So they're rare, we're not very likely to find them close to us. If these are 90% of the stars fall along this main sequence and 10% of them fall around here, you know, just randomly placing them, it's going to be much rarer to find one of these very large stars very close to us. So that's the main sequence, that's this darkened line here. The other thing shown here is the white dwarf region. White dwarf region is down here below the main sequence. They're extremely hot stars, 10,000, 30,000 degrees, so extremely hot, but they're also incredibly faint. So if you have a very, very hot star that's very faint, it's got to be incredibly tiny, right? It's hot, it's putting out every square meter of its surface, putting out a lot of energy, but it's so faint, and again, this is luminosity, so distance actually doesn't come in here. So very, very hot, very, very faint means those are incredibly tiny. Those are stars that are the size of the Earth. So those stars really are about, about, about planet-sized, about Earth-planet-sized. What these are, as we'll study in the coming chapters, those are the dead cores of stars. They're not living stars, right? not that stars are alive in our sense, but an active star is actually fusing hydrogen to helium. It's got an energy source inside. These stars do not have that. These, this is what the Sun will become in a few billion years once it expels its outer layers out into space and its core contracts down to something about the size of the Earth. That's what will be left here. Will be what we call a white dwarf star. So we start, we're trying to see these different patterns. Again, we're going to go through all the details of this in the coming chapters. But we start to see some patterns as to where the stars are forming. We see some stars on the main sequence. We see some very faint stars that are very hot. Now what if instead of looking at just the closest stars to us, right, those aren't the ones we're used to talking about. Uh, we're typically used to talking about stars, you know, Betelgeuse and Rigel and all these nice bright stars. What if we look at just the brightest stars, take the hundred brightest stars in the sky. Right? These are all the ones that you go out there when you go out at night and look at. Those are the stars you're seeing. 
So you may recognize some of the names. Arcturus, there's Betelgeuse, there's Antares, Sirius, Vega. You may have heard some of these names, Alpha Centauri. Now our sun has changed. Our sun was at the top of that other list, or very close to it. Now our sun's at the bottom. Now we're nothing. We're a little teeny tiny faint star by comparison. Everything else is much brighter. There's brightness. You know, What's below our sun among those hundred brightest stars? Absolutely nothing. Our sun is much fainter than any of those. Alpha Centauri is the only one that's even close. Now we're starting to see some other parts of the HR diagram fill in. We saw this part of the HR diagram here. We see this part now fill in with the hottest stars. These are all stars that are still on the main sequence. But we also start to see some red giants and red supergiants off here that we'll start to see form as well. And those are much, lar- much cooler stars, but also much larger. These are some of those very large stars that we looked at. So we have red giant and blue giant stars that formed. We know that they're not close because none of these stars appeared on our closest 80 stars. These stars are bright not because they're close to us, but because they are so tremendously luminous. They are putting out so much energy that so much energy that they're tremendously bright and they're brighter than anything else that we see. So these are the real bright ones that you go out there and see. When you go out and look at a bright star, you know, go out one night, if it stays clear tonight, you know, go out and look at a star and those real bright ones that you see are all on this list. Yes, ma'am. Polaris does not show up on this one. Polaris is not a really bright star. Honestly, it's, I don't know, it might probably, it makes a list of the 100 brightest. It would be on this one. Uh, it's a bluer star, as I recall. It would be out in, out in, probably up in this range. It's one of those, but it's not a tremendously bright star. It is very far away. The only reason it's so interesting is that it happens to be in just the right direction of the sky. If we lived 3,000 years later, Polaris would just be a faint star. And would, I mean, moderately faint, mid, mid star, and that would be it. It's just that it happens to be located right near the pole right now. So if we'd lived thousands of years ago or thousands of years from now, we wouldn't even, it wouldn't have been such a special star. Maybe one of the others would be. <laughs> so, brightest stars. Again, we get a different pattern. If we put all this together, then we can actually look at an entire HR diagram, try to put together the brightest stars, which are giving us one sampling of very rare stars. These are not common. Right? The one giant one we looked at, that VY Canis Majoris one that I showed you in the little video clip there, that's not a common star. There are not many stars that are that gigantic. Antares is a very large star. Again, very rare. Betelgeuse, these are rare ones. You don't see them all over the place. That's why we didn't see any very close to us. They're there because there's billions upon billions of stars in our galaxy and we're going to find some of uh, varying sizes as they go through their lives. But they're very rare. So these are very rare. The other ones we saw here are the close by ones. They'd be hard to see. If you took something like uh, Proxima Centauri and put it out at the distance of any of these stars, we wouldn't be able to see it. You put it far enough away, even the biggest telescopes wouldn't be able to see it. Lots of those stars are incredibly faint. So there's lots of them there. We just don't, we can't even see them. Yeah? Why is it that Deneb seems to be Deneb seems to be off the chart because it is extremely luminous. So it's kind of like a blue giant. It's almost into a blue supergiant range. It's actually even bigger. So what it might be doing is it's a very hot star. It's probably moving on this HR diagram. Stars don't stay in one spot here. 
as they go through their lives, they'll change. Their luminosity will change and their temperature will change. So it's reaching an extremely luminous phase. Uh, it may be, and I'm not sure exactly, but it could be heading over here. You could walk, come back in 10,000 years, 20,000 years, and it might, then it might be over here and it might have cooled off significantly <coughs> many thousands of years. So it's in the process of changing. Many of these are, all the ones over here are in the process of change. Even the sun is, but it's so slow right now that we don't notice it. The sun is slowly getting slightly hotter. We won't notice it in our lifetime, but it is slowly over time getting slightly hotter and brighter and it's, it will slowly work its way up and into this red giant range. It takes it five billion years to get there. So it's not going to all of a sudden, you know, get up here and boom, once it gets there, you know, we're gone. It's vaporized the oceans and everything else. Everything will, everything will be gone here by then. Alright, so here now, we did 80 stars, we did 100 stars, how about 20,000 stars? Um, now we start to get a really distinct region. We get to see that main sequence. Fills out really, really good. There's a few stars that just don't quite fit in any place. There's a couple back here. There's a couple here. A few scattered around here. These are likely stages that just don't last a long time. So if a star lives 10 billion years and it spends, it spends 90 percent of that on the main sequence, we're going to see lots of stars there. They're spending lots of time there. Um, we're going to see as they, spend less and, as they spend less and less time, they spend less time in the red giant region, about 10%. White dwarfs, eh, a little different here because they spend a lot of time there because once you form a white dwarf, it's there and it's not going anyplace, except in very rare circumstances. It's going to just stay there, but they're also hard to find because they're so tiny. They might, be, they might have a lot of energy per each square meter, but they're only the size of the Earth. They're hard to see. If you put them 100 light years away or 1,000 light years away, they're essentially invisible. So this gives you kind of a breakdown. About 90% of the stars lie on this main sequence. That means a star spends about 90% of its life there. About 9% of them are red giants. Star spends about 9 to 10% of its life here. So you get a 1 in 10 chance, you know, of finding it there. It's just kind of random. It's, if you want to take a, you know, take a random snapshot of yourself, you know, Pick out a point. Well, one minute during the day, where were you? Well, you might pick any time. You know, you've got, you spend an hour here in class, roughly. You've got about a 1 in 24 chance of getting you in this classroom. How much time do you spend at home sleeping? Well, you maybe got a 1 in 3, 1 in 4, 1 in 5 chance, depending on how much time you spend sleeping, of getting you, of getting you there. You might stop and get gas one time for, you know, 5 minutes. If you do it just right, you might get you there, but the odds of it are much less. Right? 5 minutes out of a whole day. It's going to be much less. Same thing with stars. They don't spend a lot of time here and we're only getting a random snapshot of one section of their life. We can't watch them go through this phase because it takes billions of years, millions of years. So we can't watch the star, oh, as it ages and it goes up here. We just get a snapshot of each star where it happens to be at, that, at this instant. So some of them are here, some of them are there. It really just depends on where they happen to be in their lives. But we can use this information to kind of piece everything together and figure out how the stars do go through their lives. And that's really the subject of our next several chapters is going to go through the, the lives of the stars. Let me see where I am here. Let me stop with that. Let me just stop there because before I go on to, I don't want to try to go on to distances right now. So what I'm going to come back to next uh, uh, Friday, I'll do some distances and then we'll finish up most of chapter 10 probably then. And then on Wednesday I will go through the HR diagram. And I'll actually, well, I'll make one. We'll, we'll actually make, I'll make one up on the board for you. We'll actually go through how we go about figuring everything, everything out there. So, 
Uh, not a lot here coming up this week. You do have a quiz. If you want to get your iTunes quiz out of the way, you can do that anytime. Homework four, I do recommend you can get started on that. That's due next Wednesday, a week from today. And otherwise, have a good rest of the day. And I will see you on Friday for lab.